Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 to 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I'm what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any one of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you now um, as we always come, needy, and yet very grateful. God, I pray, would you please speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to more fully grasp and marvel at what has been done for us in the person of Jesus. Come now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already had an opportunity to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15, it invites you to do so. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 8, 8 to 11 this morning. Uh, author Philip Yancey describes a conference that took place in Britain a, a number of years ago. A number of world's leading experts in their religious field had come together and had gathered in one place and in one time. And what these religious experts began to do, gathered in this room, is began, they began to discuss what, if anything, was unique to Christianity. What, what does Christianity bring to the world? So they're, they're, they're talking amongst themselves. They're, they're gradually crossing things off the list. And finally, uh, C.S. Lewis, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, walks into the room and in very Lewisian fashion goes, what's the rumpus all about? And they explain to him, we're, we're discussing if Christianity brings anything unique to the world. And, and Lewis responds like this. He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Paul, in chapter 15 here, is trying to remind us of grace. Chapter 15 is the high point of this entire book. And he comes to it and he goes, if there's one thing I want you to understand, it's grace. He says this in the very first verse of chapter 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, you might go, hold on, there's no mention of grace there. You just said gospel, which, which means good news. But, but the good news to Paul is the reality of grace. And so in Acts 20, we read this. This is, again, Paul speaking. But I do not account of my life any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. Or, or again, in Galatians chapter 1, we read this. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
To, to desert the grace of Christ is to, he then goes on, to turn to a different gospel. And there is not another one. What, what is grace? Um, grace is two parts. Grace is an unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient. It's an unobligated favor to an undeserving recipient. So let me, let me give you three illustrations. I, I think Tim Keller was the first person I heard this from. He says, let's say you have an excellent school teacher. They go above and beyond. They're spending extra time with you. They just seem to be so dedicated and meticulous to trying to give you the best education as, as possible. And at the end of the year, you decide to buy them a gift. Now, that is not grace. Because while they did not obligate a gift from you, there's no contract that said you had to buy them a gift at the end of the year. In one way or another, they are deserving of it. Now, take this second illustration. Uh, let's say you have uh, an, a, an employee, and they just, for lack of a better term, suck. They, they uh, are awful. They, they don't do their job properly. They don't care. They're, they're unwilling to learn. Now, at the end of their two weeks on the job, you, you might fire them. But before that, you pay them what is due. Now, that is also not grace. Because while they are maybe undeserving, you're actually obligated to give them that pay. You, you wrote it up in their contract. Now, take this third example. Let's say you have an awful neighbor. They're up on Saturdays at 7 a.m. with the power tools, working outside. They, they leave a mess everywhere. They're rude. They're inconsiderate. Now, and yet, one day, they fall ill. They, let's say they fall down. They, they break a leg. They're unable to get out of bed. And so you decide to buy them groceries. You care for them. You, you mow their lawn. That's grace. That is an unobligated gift to an undeserving recipient. Grace is amazing. It's why we sing about it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace is amazing. And what Paul wants to do this morning is just to help us understand just how amazing it is. And so what Paul does in verse 8 is he writes himself into the story. Paul writes himself into the story. He goes, you want to see just how beautiful grace is? Look at my life. Look at what God has done for me. Look where I came from and look who he's made me now. This morning, I want us to see the grace of God that was at work in Paul. And then what I want us to do is to realize that that same grace is offered to us. So I have a very simple outline this morning. The recipients of grace, point one. And secondly, the responses of grace. Who is it that needs grace? And secondly, what does it do? So firstly, the recipients of grace. Look at verse 8 with me again. Paul writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, if there's 
anyone we'd have thought didn't need grace, it was Paul. Uh, You see, Paul represents, in one way, the best of us. He's the best of us. Um, Prior to encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus, we know that Paul was a Pharisee. Acts 26, verse 4 to 5 say this, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. He was of the strictest sect in Judaism. Pharisees, they put laws around laws. They, they wanted to keep the rules meticulously, and so they, they put extra borders around, extra barriers and precautions around the laws that already existed to make sure they don't cross any or, or break any of those rules. More than being just a Pharisee, we know that Paul was brilliant. He says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as of you are this day. Uh, Paul, we know, attended the university in Tarsus. That was the Ivy League of universities back in the day. Paul uh, gave his life to study and learn about God. Uh, As a Jew, as a Pharisee, he would have memorized the first five books, not five verses of the Bible. That's a struggle for some, me. He's memorized the first five books of the Bible. He's, he's given his life to this task. And Gamaliel is his teacher. Gamaliel was the best of the day. He was the envy of it all. It would be like having D.A. Carson as your Bible teacher or Winston Churchill teach you wartime. More than that, Paul was the future of Judaism. Paul says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. I'm better than all my peers. Paul is the best of us. He is better than us. He says this in Philippians 3. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Bedroomen, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has the lineage, the reputation, the promise, the track record, the obedience, the work ethic. And the reason I'm trying to tell us all of this is to say, look, no one is above need of grace. Paul says, the grace of God appeared to me. He didn't think he needed it. And yet God showed up. God had to appear to him. God showed him grace. It's even more shocking, actually, the way Paul puts it. Paul says this. He says, last of all, verse 8 As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, 
those words, untimely born, if you translate that literally, it, it literally means I, I'm an aborted baby. God appeared to me a, an aborted baby. It's also translated elsewhere in Greek literature as monster. There's some defect with Paul, he says. I was this undesirable chunk of flesh thrown out into the street. See, they didn't have ultrasounds back then to give warnings of what your child would be like. And so you would have your baby. You'd go, uh, that looks hideous. There's some deformity. There's something wrong with them. And what you would do, you'd take them to the back alley and you just leave your child there. That, that, that was how you had an abortion back in the day. But Paul says, that's actually who I realized I was. I was that baby left in the street with no one to love me and care for me. No, no one desired me except God himself. He, he gives us, uh, or we're, we're told of this picture in the book of Ezekiel. Um, again, Paul would have been familiar with this passage. It may even be he has this passage in mind. Um, this, is, this is Jesus describing Israel. And Paul says, this is true of me. We read, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. Despite all his successes, all his greatness, all his achievement, all his fame, Paul goes, I was that baby left in that field. Um, This week, I was absolutely broken by this. Um, We we were praying as a staff for for you, our church, and we were just (laughs) reminding each other of of grace in, in, in our prayer time, and we... We were just praying, and, and we were just, I just remembered, I actually was that baby left in my own blood, no one to care for me. So, sometimes I think I come to God and go, God, you, there's uh, some things I've done, and you'd be impressed with them. And I'm tempted to believe the, the reason I'm accepted is on the basis of, of what I've done. And, and here, Paul just confronts me on that. And he goes, no, Daniel, you were helpless. There's nothing desirable about you in reality. You you do not live up to God's perfect standard. God has no need of you. And yet he loves you. He shows you grace. Uh, Why is it that Paul needed God's grace? In in her book, Flannery O'Connor, Wise Blood, she describes one character this way. She says, there was a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Now, I think the same could be said of Paul. Uh, Paul's righteousness and morality 
was a way he found to, to not need God, to not need grace. See, Paul wanted to be his own savior. If he could keep all the rules, if, if he could live a good enough life, then he would not need God to step in and save him. See, the reality is Paul thought, actually, you know what? If I live a good enough life, if I obey the rules well enough, you know what? God actually owes me. God is actually going to be in, in my debt. See, Paul was trying to control God. God, I've done these things for you. Now it's about time you give me what I want. He was using God. Notice who's at the top of the totem pole in all this. It's Paul. Paul is the one controlling God. Paul didn't want God. Paul just wanted what God could give him. Paul was the one in control. Paul was the one using God for his own means. Paul was his own savior. And so why, in reality, did Paul need grace? It's because the truth is he rejected God. By being his own savior, he was rejecting God. See, there's a religious version of this, right? So, so I, I obey God, right? And then God gives me what I want, right? I'm, I'm in control. I'm the Savior. I just use God to get what I want. There's also a secular version of this. See, the secular version just cuts out the middleman. It just cuts out God. It just says, God, I, I'm my own Savior. I live life a certain way. I live excellently. And then life just gives me what I want. I see if I work hard, if I put in the extra hours, if I just save enough money, if I just do a good enough job, if I put in the time and effort, then security comes my way. Happiness comes my way. If I help others, well, others will help me back. It's the way the universe operates. If I'm a good person, then things should just go well with me. The, see, the secular version does the same thing as the religious version. They both say, I'm my own savior. I'm the one in control. But there's actually an, even another side of the secular version. See, the other side of the secular version doesn't obey or doesn't do excellently. It actually rebels. But again, it also tries to save oneself. It says, look, I'm actually going to kick off the customs and rules of this culture we live on. I, I actually know what's best for me. Thank you very much. I don't need you telling me how I should live or, or how I should fit in or what's best for me. I can make my own decisions, thank you very much. So I, I, I've fallen in love with someone else who's not my spouse. Well, I commit adultery because I, I know what true love is. I know what would be best for me in the long run. I, I lie and steal. If it means I get what I want, I get the finances I'm looking for. I take certain substances because it gives me a high. Makes me feel good. I'm angry or, or violent because then I get what I want. They're all the same. They're all us just being our own savior. And, and Paul to this last one, this disobedient version, he goes, in a way, I was also that. See, on one hand, Paul represents the best of us. In another hand, Paul represents the worst of us. Paul says in this in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
I persecuted the church. We, we also know what this looks like. In Acts chapter 7, we read this. Then they cast him out. That's talking about a Christian named Stephen. They took Stephen out and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Paul. That's Paul's name before it was changed, Saul. Saul is standing there holding the coats of those who, who are killing Christian, uh, Stephen the Christian. Paul goes, that was satisfying. That was thrilling. And so he goes deeper. Acts chapter 9 says this. Saul, again Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, Paul goes, I was even more involved in this murderous process. I actually was going out looking for Christians so that I could bring them back and murder them. Paul goes, I was a murderer. I'm the least of the apostles. I am the, the chief of sinners, Paul will write later. And yet the grace of God appeared to me. This is who I was. And yet God showed up. See, the, the thread is all the same. Religion or irreligion. Morality or immorality. It's all us being our own savior. It's all us trying to find fulfillment and joy on our own. But the reality is that crushes us. That's a burden we cannot carry. How, how is it working out? Being, being your own savior. How, how does it work out? You find fulfillment in it. You find joy and peace. You're able to get off the, the rat race that is life. You go, you go to bed and sleep at night. Or, or are you anxious about tomorrow? You feel unburdened by guilt. You feel like you've been able to put shame behind you. Or what happens when you die? Who, who saves you then? C.S. Lewis, he writes this, he says, Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? Does it matter to a man dying in the desert by choice of route which he missed the only well? Does it matter how we got lost? It doesn't. Morality, immorality, religion, irreligion, we're lost. We've missed the only well that is grace. But God, <laughs> but God appeared to Paul, each of us in need of grace, but God offers each that same grace. All are offered the same gift of life. All are given the offer of forgiveness of sin and everlasting joy. See, just as he came to Paul, he came to us. Paul says this about the way Jesus appeared to him. Again, Acts 9, talking about his testimony, Paul writes this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Again, he's not searching for God here. He's on his way to kill Christians. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. God breaks in. And so Paul, verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, in that moment, Paul all of a sudden believed that Jesus was alive. And that if Jesus was alive, then that offer of forgiveness is real. Grace is actually a thing. The the grave is empty. (laughs) And so grace and forgiveness has been accomplished and, and offered to us. And he also realized in that moment that the way that grace is accomplished is by Jesus' suffering. See, um, there's a reason God could take Paul, that unboarded fetus, lying in his blood, and make him his own. There's a reason that even though Paul was abhorred and disgusting and ought to die, that he should be given life. The, The reason is, please hear this, is because Jesus took Paul's place. Um, it, It was of Jesus that they cried, not live, live, but crucify him, crucify him. It, It was Jesus who was taken out, out of the city, into the field to find Paul. To, to find us. It was Jesus who was crucified on the cross. It was Jesus who was drenched in his own blood, nails piercing his hands and feet. It was Jesus who died so that we might live. It was Jesus who bore our wrath so that we might be forgiven. That's why we can be accepted. That's why we experience grace. And the offer to Paul is the offer to us Stop being your own savior. Trust in me, says Jesus. Let me save you. Therefore, what happens if we receive that? We go, yes, Jesus, I need your grace. I accept you as my savior. I I trust in your work on my behalf. What happens then? Paul says that, that triggers a response in us. There's a response in us. That some, something happens now. So, so look at the second point, okay? The responses of grace. The responses of grace. Look at verses 10 to 11 again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about the different ways we can be changed. He talks about the ways we can find improvement in our lives. He, He describes this example. He puts it this way. He says, improvement is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own games. And there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that strain... And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they are going to be wings. See, here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He says, look, if you want to teach a horse to jump higher, you can just beat it into submission. Just come on, train it, work at it, 
Put the, put the time and effort in. Just, just pull up your bootstraps, dig a little deeper, and just will it into being. Or, or you just give it wings. You, you just give the horse wings. You just, you just turn it into a new creature. See, Paul says that the, the first way that grace changes us or, or transforms us is by giving us wings, so to speak. It, it just makes us a new cre- creature. It gives us a new identity. See, Paul, in the upcoming weeks in chapter 15, is going to talk about uh, Christ's resurrection from the dead. And what Paul will go on to say is that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to Christians and now lives in us. It empowers us. It, It changes us. So we read this in Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. See, when we put our trust in Jesus, Paul says, the Spirit of God, the very same Spirit that was at work in Jesus, now lives in us. And it changes us. It gives us new desires. It gives us a supernatural ability to walk in newness of life. It gives us a brand new identity. We once were sinners, now we're saints. We once were enemies, now we're God's children. We once were slave to sin, and now we are free. There's an objective change that happens in us. We have a new identity. So C.S. Lewis says there's an objective change, right? You put wings on the horse. But he also, Lewis said, you notice, he said, sometimes they're just beginning to form. Initially, they're just maybe little lumps on the shoulders, and they don't really look like wings. And so there's an objective change that happens, but those wings need to grow. There's also a subjective change that needs to happen. So my question is, how, how do those wings actually grow? Paul will say here that that grace gives us new motives. It it gives us new motives. In Peter Schaeffer's play, Amadeus, uh, Peter Schaeffer follows a young budding composer named Salieri. Salieri was an excellent writer of music. And, And he comes up with this bargain. He creates this bargain with God. I don't have it on the screen, but, but listen. He says this to God. I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, he says, I vow... I will give you, God, my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. Amen and amen. And so Salieri actually keeps this vow. And things seem to be going well. He's, he's getting the reputation and, and the recognition he's desiring from others. He's, he's living a chaste life. He's giving himself to those mu- to his music. And then all of a sudden comes Mozart. Amadeus Mozart. And Salieri was good 
uh, Mozart is brilliant. Mozart is a genius like no other. And Salieri is furious. Here's Mozart engaged to be married, doing whatever he wants, living a great and happy life, and yet he's so blessed by God. The, the name Amadeus literally means beloved by God. How come God, you love him? Salieri questions. And so Salieri goes on to say this. He says, it was incomprehensible. Here I was denying all my natural lust in order to deserve God's gift. And there was Mozart indulging his in all his directions. Even though engaged to be married and no rebuke at all. And so Salieri says this to God. He says, from now on, we are enemies. You and I, we're enemies, God. And he gives the rest of his life to try and destroy Mozart. To kill him. Do you see what it is that drives Salieri? What's underneath his motives? His actions? What, what sits in his heart? It's two things, I think. It's fear and it's pride. It's fear and it's pride. It's fear. I, I want my life to matter. What will happen next if I'm not loved? What will happen to my career and my finances and my way of living? What will happen if I don't have those things I desperately want? There's, there's fear, but there's also pride. I, I want to be great. I want the recognition and the fame. I want the, the status. I want people to look up to me. And so Salieri just does whatever it takes to get those things. If it means, okay, I'm going to obey God to get those things, great. But if that stops working, then I'll just flip to the other side. I'll just disobey God. I'll hate Mozart and I'll try to kill him. See, at the root of Salieri's righteousness and immorality was the very same things, pride and fear. And the same is true of us, I think, without grace. But then the grace of God appears. And in that moment, we no longer try to control God. God just says, you don't have to control me. I'm all yours. He just freely gives of himself to us. And in that moment, we're confronted by the great cost that God paid on our behalf. See, when you realize that God had to die for you, please hear that again. We, we were so broken, so without hope, that the only way we could be saved, the only way we could be given life and forgiveness is for God to actually come down, live as a man, and be given to us, and then die on a cross. When you realize that, that takes away the box we would stand on and look down upon others with. There's no pride in me anymore. My goodness, I see how broken I was. But, but also when you realize, do you realize how loved you are? God loved you to that extent that he would give of his own life for you? That takes away all my fear. What do I need to be worried about? The God of the universe loves me like that. He's crazy about me. If, if he's given me his very own son, will he not also give me everything else I need? See, the gospel, it humbles us and it also lifts us up. 
We have no need to worry, and we have no need to look down upon others. In Jesus, I have all the status and all the security I need. And so no longer do I want to use God. It's not me trying to control God. God, would you just give me something else? God's not a, a, a token in the vending machine to actually give me what I want. No, God is the thing I want. God, I see you. Who would love me like that? You are beautiful and magnificent, and so I give my life to you. It's you I want, God. It's you I would live for. It's you I want to please. The, the way wings grow, the way our wings grow, the way we are changed, is by getting grace into our hearts. When we actually dwell on and reflect on what God has done for us, that allows our wings to grow. Then we, we're changed. It, it transforms the way we live our lives. One theologian puts it this way. He says, grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder does lightning. Grace produces gratitude. And so let me, let me just end by giving you quickly three ways, I know, three ways uh, Paul responded to this grace. Okay? Three ways. Firstly, by obedience to God. Paul responded with obedience. See, I think we're tempted to believe sometimes if God's shown us grace, well then who cares how I live? But the reality is it's actually the exact opposite that's true. Uh, Romans 6 puts it this way. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one of whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become, listen, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching of which you were committed. See, the reason we obey is we want to please him. God, if these are really your rules, then I'm going to follow those. I want, I want to obey you. I want to please you. But also we obey because we trust him. If God's really given himself for us, man, I trust you. I trust you know what's good for me. I trust you, your commands actually lead me in life and, and flourishing that those are given for my good and well-being. One author, Walter Marshall, he puts it this way, what a strange kind of salvation do they desire that care not for holiness. They would be saved by Christ and yet be out of Christ in a fleshly state. They would have their sins forgiven, not that they may walk with God in love, but that they may practice their enmity against him. God, if you've given yourself to me and ultimately the greatest gift I have is a newfound relationship with you, why would I want to hurt you then? So we obey. Paul obeyed. Secondly, Paul's newfound grace caused him to be willing to suffer for the glory of God. To suffer for the glory of God. Um, there's a section in Paul's other letter to the church in Corinth, where, when he describes what he went through as a follower of Jesus to, to try to bring the good news of Jesus to other churches, to other people. <coughs> and, and he writes this. I've read this whole thing in, in length, but I'm just going to focus on a part of it this time. He says, Are they servants of Christ? 
I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Um, He goes on and, and on and on. But he says, five times I received 40 lashes less one. Legally, um, you were allowed to flog someone 40 times. That's what the Old Testament said. If there's a serious enough command or a breaking of a command, you can flog them up to 40 times. Um, It's not the death penalty. And so the Jews had calculated and thought it through. Okay, the point which a man would just cling to his life but not die was 40. But they, they said, you know what, in case we accidentally miscount, we should just stop at 39. Okay, again, true Pharisees. We, we don't want to go over the number 40, so we'll do 40 less one just in case we miscount. Um, Paul says, I received that five times. Um, just imagine, there's no modern medicine back then. There's, there's no uh, antibiotics. There's no plastic surgery to heal scar tissue. There's no nurses to, to care for him, mend his wound, pain medications like we have today. This is a man clinging to his life five times. The, the, the first time, his back uh, would have been severely bruised and, and opened up. And then he undergoes it a second time. And then um, a third time. And at this point, uh, the the back's probably not healing the way it should. Those open wounds aren't aren't coming together. Uh, His back is all knotted up, muscles torn, most likely. Then a fourth time. And then a fifth time. Uh, Please, please hear me. This is no sham. Paul, Paul's not making this up. He's not going, you know, I have this great idea about the inbreaking of grace. I'm just going to tell other people about it. It's just this good idea I have. I thought of up. I made it up. I'm going to go. After which time do you admit, okay, this, was, this is something I made up? The first time? Second time? When do you give in and go, okay, this was all fake, I admit it. No, but Paul goes, no, no, no. Five times I received 40 lashes less one. Why? Because Paul was crazy about the glory of God. He goes, God appeared to me, the chief of sinners. Man, I love him. I need the world to know what he's done for them. I want to give my life to make the fame and deeds of my God known. And so I go, look, I'm not using God to get a life of happiness. Although happiness does come, there, there is true joy. But he goes, ultimately, I want God himself. So sure, bring suffering my way. It's still worth it if it means I get Jesus. Willing to suffer. Lastly, he had a deep love for others. Um, Paul was not willing to suffer just because he loved God. He was willing to suffer because he loved others. Um, Having been forgiven, having known what he was saved from, 
knowing the punishment that he deserved now taken away. Paul wants others to experience that joy. He wants others to experience that, that happiness. They need to know grace too. And so Paul goes. Paul says this in Romans 9. I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I don't even know how that's possible, but Paul goes, if I could tell others about Jesus and they would come to know him and that, that means I would be cut off, I think he's speaking hyperbolically, he goes, it would be worth it. That's how much I love others. I don't look down on others anymore. I see we're all on the same playing field at the foot of the cross. We all need grace. And so Paul became the greatest missionary this world had ever known. He, he had taken the gospel into cities and countries that had never heard of Jesus. He had established churches. He trained leaders. He wrote more than half of our New Testament. But why did he do it? Not to earn God's favor. Not so that he could control God. Not so that he would be his own savior and that God would be indebted to him. He says it was all grace. Let me read verse 10 again. Let, let me put us this time. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And his grace towards us was not in vain. On the contrary, we worked harder than any of them, though it was not us, but the grace of God that is with me. Let me pray. Father, it really is amazing grace. And we're going to spend our life, we're going to spend eternity marveling at this grace. God, we're going to sing of the blood of Jesus, of, of the crucified lamb for all eternity. Lord, just rejoicing in the fact that we belong to you. God, would you help us to do that even now? God, fill our hearts with wonder. God, humble us. And remind us of the great security we also have in you. Father, I pray that the gospel would also change us. That we would live differently because of what Jesus has done. All for your glory, not for our own. And so, Lord, I pray if there are any here who, Lord, who go, I need a Savior. I need someone to come on my behalf. God, would you right now Appear to them as you appear to Paul. Show them the crucified Jesus, the risen Jesus now, who loves them and gave his life for them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake 
at ChristityChurch.ca.